1 Kings chapter 9. We're going to jump right in here and then I'll kind of give you the introduction as we look at the first two verses. So chapter 9, verse 1, it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time and he had as, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. So it's been about, 20 to tw- about 24 years since Solomon has taken the throne of Israel and during this time his accomplishments have been magnificent. They've been spectacular. They've been great, however you want to classify them. He's amassed an incredible amount of wealth. He's, he has wisdom that's known throughout the land. He's built his own house along with his, another house for his wife from Egypt. He's built a tabernacle, for, or temp, not a tabernacle, built a temple for the Lord. And he's witnessed the presence of God occupy the, the temple that he built, an incredible thing. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we, we read where it said, Chapter 8, verse 10, it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What an incredible feat that was that he was able to see. Finally, after all these years, God's presence is now again revealed to the people of Israel. As he rests on the temple there, as he dwells in the holy of holies, he gave this beautiful prayer of dedication that we saw. And we can kind of say that Solomon is at this point, he's reached the pinnacle of his life. It says that he's accomplished all that he set out to do. He's accomplished it. He's at the top. He's accomplished all of his to-do list, all of his bucket list. All of it is done. He's accomplished some incredible feats. And that's present, that, that brings him to the pinnacle, if you would. He's accomplished great things according to the world's standards. But he's also accomplished great things according to the Lord's standards or spiritual standards as well. Solomon was on top of the mountain. Sometimes we'll say as Christians, I'm up on the mountaintops. I'm way up here, and that's where he is. He's on top of the mountain. He's completed the greatest thing that he could ever accomplish. All that he could set his heart and his mind for, now he has finally achieved it. Listen, when we experience spiritual victory, we should also expect great spiritual battles to follow. Solomon's at the top. He's on the mountaintop. You know what the problem with being on the mountaintop is? You don't stay up there very long. (laughs) Because you've got to come down to the valley again. When we experience great spiritual victories, just as Solomon's doing here, we should also expect great spiritual battles. When the work's done, when the results are in, when you want to sit back and you want to relax, you want to look and go, wow, look what I've accomplished. Look what God's used me to do. Praise the Lord. And you want to just sit back and take that relaxation. It's time to say, be careful, Christian. Be careful. After the greatest accomplishments will often fall the greatest defeats. And it's true whether it be in the life of Elijah calling down fire on Mount Carmel to overthrow the prophets of Baal and now he finds himself running from Jezebel or whether it be in Solomon's life or whether it be in your very own life. Sometimes your greatest spiritual accomplishments is when on the backside of those are when you're going to be tempted, when you're going to be tried the hardest. Because when you're, when you're climbing the mountain, you're fighting. You know you can make it. You know you're going to continue. You expect the spiritual battle. It's when you kick back and you want to sit back and go, wow, I'm done. It's time to rest. Put the feet up a little bit. Let's watch a little TV. Whatever you do. And then you find out, wow, here it comes. The greater the work, the greater the battle. The greater the work that you're doing, the greater the battle. Don't sit still too long. Enjoy the rest. But quickly get back to the Lord saying, Lord, what do you want me to do next? Don't sit still. Don't don't become complacent. Don't just sit there. G. Campbell Morgan put it this way. He said, 
It was the hour when the accomplishment of work means the relaxation of effort. That is always a perilous hour. And the greater the work done, the graver the peril. A life which has been full of activity, when the activity ceases, it demands some new interest, and it will find it either high or low, either good or bad. In other words, you're going to find something else to focus on. And if it's not for the Lord, be careful. It might be the place that the enemies kind of creep in. So as Solomon crosses this pinnacle, it's amazing the Lord appears to him again for the second time. And let's look at verse, uh, I'm going to read from the beginning just for context. Chapter 9, verse 1. It came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, that's his own house, and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if, here comes the beginning of an if-then statement, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you. And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if your sons all turn from following me, and they do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which, which I have set before you, but they go and serve other gods and they worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I have consecrated for my name, I'll cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all the people. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and they'll hiss and they'll say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they'll answer, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all of this calamity on them. As it said, this is not the first time the Lord appeared to Solomon. Back in 1 Kings chapter 3, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a vision by the night, by night. And the Lord said to Solomon, Solomon, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? And what did Solomon say? I want wisdom, Lord. I need help. I need to know how to rule these people. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what I'm doing, Lord. I, I don't know. I need, I need your help. Give me wisdom. And the Lord was pleased. You want to know how, my, how to lead my people? You want wisdom? Great. I'm going to give you wisdom, but I'm also going to give you riches. I'm going to give you honor, and I'm going to give you fame, all the things you didn't ask for. But he gave him a warning in there also. Right after he told him that, he said, so. He said, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes, my commandments, as your father David did, did, then I will lengthen your days. Isn't it great that the Lord comes to him a second time? It's not just once. The Lord visits often. The Lord will visit as, visit as often as, as you might need him to visit. As a matter of fact, I think we need a regular visit from the Lord. Now, I don't know that I've ever had a vision of the Lord like Solomon did, but I get a visit from the Lord every time I open the scriptures. Every time I open his word, I can hear God say something to me. You see, if I go to the Bible with the, with the heart that says, Lord, will you speak to me? I promise you he will, and he'll do the same thing for you. You want a visit from the Lord, you're feeling dry, you're feeling like you need some direction, you're feeling like I'm just not connected. I, are, you, are you in the word? Are you really going to the Lord saying, Lord, will you show me this? Will you, will you teach me something? Show me something. 
You see, we all need to hear from God. We need a fresh revelation, and we're going to find that in our scriptures. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, brothers, we want renewed appearances, fresh manifestations, new visitations from on high. And I commend to those of you who are getting on in life that while you thank God for the past and look back with joy to his visits to you in your early days, that you now seek and ask for a second visitation of the Most High. You see, I think that if you're feeling dry tonight and you're feeling, you know, I really need to hear from the Lord, I think you need to ask him. I think you need to go to him with the desire that I, I want to. If you're looking for direction tonight, agree to follow whatever he shows you. You see, you can't go for looking for counsel. As, I just don't want your advice, God. You have to be willing to follow the device, the direction that he gives you. But if you're looking for it, you find it in the word of God. Now here for the second time, God's appearing to Solomon and he says some things to him. Number one, he says, I heard your prayers and your supplications that you've made before me. I heard your prayers, Solomon. I heard, I heard, I heard all that you said. Isn't it great that God hears our prayers? Isn't it great that you don't have to wonder when you pray, God, are you listening? He's listening. Now he might not do what you want, right? He's not always going to answer it the way that you want to answer it, but he's hearing it. You, you can rest assured that he's hearing what you're saying. He's understanding what you're asking. And if you're asking according to his will, it will be performed for you. If it's according to his will. But he hears our prayers. And he also says to Solomon, he says, Solomon, I've consecrated this house, which you've built for my name forever. I've consecrated. Solomon, you've done the physical work, but the consecration, that belongs to me. I'm the one that set it apart. I'm the one that is now occupied. Before I, before I moved in, it was nothing but, but, a, but a building, but, a, but, a, but a, a, a temple. It was just four walls and a roof. Or it, was, it was nothing. Now God is occupying it. He's the one that set it aside. I've consecrated it. Man builds and God consecrates. Uh, F.B. Meyer said this, man builds, God consecrates. This cooperation between man and God is all throughout life. Man performs the outward and the mechanical, and God performs the inward and the spiritual. You see, we can work for the Lord, but the Lord's got to do the consecration. He's got to take the work that we're doing and set it apart and make it spiritual. We can't make that part of it. That's the Lord's. But we must be careful to do our part with reverence and godly fear, remembering that God must work in realms that we cannot touch and to issues we cannot reach before our poor exertions can avail. So God's got to work in it on his own terms. He's going to work in the spiritual side of things. And he also told Solomon that my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So I think it's really cool that God visits him again. And this is, this is a warning. If you were counting warnings, this would be warning number four that we've seen so far in 1 Kings to Solomon about following the laws of the Lord, about drawing, staying close, being obedient to God. This would be his fourth warning. It's the second warning directly from God himself, directly from God it's coming from. So God says to Solomon, he says, look, Solomon, I've done what you asked me to do, but I want to remind you of something. I will answer your prayer, but it's conditional upon your obedience and your faithfulness. I'm going to give you what you've asked for. I'm going to set apart this place. I've, I've dwelled here. I'm going to, but Solomon, you have to obey. It's conditional upon you. I'm going to keep somebody from your family on the throne forever as long as they continue to follow me. Notice what he says in verse 4, this if-then statement. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes, my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail 
to have a man on the throne of Israel. Solomon, if you walk like your father David did, if you walk like David did, if you're like David, if you're a man of integrity or your uprightness, if that's who you are, if you do all that I commanded you to do, if you keep, your sta- keep my statutes, then, then and only then will I not fail to put a man from your family, from your line on the throne of Israel. Only then. But I think it's important to realize, how did David walk? You go, wait a minute, Rob. I was here when you talked about that whole Bathsheba thing. And, you know, he didn't, I don't know that he was always upright. You see, God's not expecting perfection. And that's demonstrated in the life of David. Walk like David did? David committed murder? David committed adultery? What do you mean walk like David did? David was certainly not perfect, but he was a man who would repent from his sins. He was a man who would get right with God, get back with God. He would turn away. He would take the actions necessary to reestablish the relationship with God when he faltered. That's how David walked. God doesn't expect us to be perfect, but he does expect us to repent and to turn away from our sins. Just like David, the Lord wants us to desire him and desire a relationship with him, his ways, to have a heart after God. David was a a man after God's own heart. That's what he's looking for. You see, remove the standard of perfection because God's not asking Solomon to be perfect, nor is he asking you to be perfect. But he's asking you to have a heart that seeks after him. He's asking you to have a heart that says, I want to serve the Lord. And I might not, I'm going to try my best to keep his law. I'm going to try. I'm going to walk after the Lord. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to do those things. And I understand that I might not be perfect because David is our example. And if David's our example, then there's room for error for us to fall too. And I don't know about you, but that's good news. I say, wow, I'm glad I don't have to be perfect and you don't have to be perfect. But it also comes with a warning to Solomon and all of his sons after him in verse six. It says, but if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you but you go and serve other gods and worship them and I'm going to cut off Israel from the land which I've given them and the house which I've consecrated for my name I'll cast out of my sight Israel will be a proverb and a byword among the peoples as for this house which is exalted Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? They're going to answer, because they, that's the Israelites, forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiped them, served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought this calamity on them. God says, Solomon, if you turn from following me, if you do not keep my commandments and my statutes, if you go and you serve other gods, then, then, look what the Lord said he's going to do. I'm going to cut Israel off from the land I've given them. Now, if you know the history, you know that this happens, don't you? You know, that, you know that God is actually going to remove the Israelites from the land that he's given them. So we know that this is actually going to happen. But here, here they're being warned again and again and again and again. So that, I don't mean to ruin the story for you, but coming in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Syrian and the Babylonian captivities, they're going to be removed from their land. So God's, God's laying down the, the, the if-then, and we're going to see that it's true. If you do these things, then this is going to happen. Then you'll be cut off from the land which I gave to them. And he's, look what else he says. I will cast the temple out of my sight. Even though I've set it aside, even though I've consecrated this temple, even though it's, it's, it's set aside for me, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get rid of it. I'll cast it out. It won't, I won't be there anymore. It'll just be a building. I won't occupy it anymore. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among the people. In other words, Israel is going to be a joke. They're going to be an example 
They're going to be an example among the people. The nation Israel was supposed to represent God to the rest of the people of the world. They were supposed to represent who God was. God would exalt himself among the nation, among the other nations through Israel. God was going to be lifted high regardless of what Israel's behavior was. He said, if you follow me, I'm going to bless you and, I'm, and you'll be, I'll, I'll magnify myself through my blessings. But if you don't follow me, in a, sense, in a sense, a curse is going to follow and people will still give God glory. They'll still know what happened. It works this way. The nation of Israel was supposed to represent God to the rest of the world, but God would exalt himself among the nations through, the, through Israel. And this is how it was going to work. If Israel obeyed God, if they kept this if statement, if they did these things, he would bless them so much so that all the other nations would look and go, wow, look what the hand of God has done upon that nation. So he, they, their blessing would be overwhelming. Their victories in battle would be you know, undeniable. The things that they would, it has to be their God that's blessing them. Whoa. But if Israel disobeyed, God would chastise them so severely that the nations would be astonished at the, at the work of God and among his disobedient people. And they would know the Lord has brought all of the calamity, all of the, all of the bad things upon them. It'd be, it would come by the hand of the Lord. Either way, God was going to be glorified through the nation Israel. It was their decision. It was an if-then statement before them. If you follow me, if you keep my commands, if you don't serve other gods, then I'm going to bless you tremendously. But if you don't, if you do these things, then all the world, everybody around you is going to know you had your land taken away from you because you left your God and you began to worship other gods. Now listen, we don't live under this old covenant or this promise. So this promise isn't for us. But I do believe the Lord as Christians still wants us to represent Christ to the world. There's not a promise, there's not an if-then promise like the nation Israel has here, but we do have an obligation to represent Jesus Christ to our friends, to our neighbors, to our families, to our co-workers. We have that obligation. I want to make something very, very clear because sometimes people take the promise like this, they take it out of the Old Testament, they want to apply it to themselves or to another nation or to another people group. This is what God said to the nation Israel. It's what God said specifically to the line of David and Solomon. And while the, we can learn things from it, it's not saying it's directly to us. But what I do think is there's something that we can learn from it because we're called to represent Christ. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to let our light shine, right? We're called to let our light shine before others so they will see our good deeds and do what? Glorify our Father in heaven. So we're called to represent Christ just as the nation Israel was called. We're not working under the same, same promise and curse that they have, but we're still called to do it. And I think this is important because we can look at the things and the mistakes that they made and we can say, I don't want to make those mistakes. God's displeased with what the nation Israel would do. And we can look at those things. We can look at those then statements and say, this is what God doesn't want us to do. Praise you, Lord, that we're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. But these are the things that, we, that God doesn't want us to do. Notice that specifically in verse 6 what God warns against. He says, turn, if you turn from following me. If you turn from following me, that means if you stop following the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean they stop believing in God. It means they stopped following God. It means they weren't seeking God for direction. It was, God, do we go out to battle? What do we do? How do we handle this? We're, we're, Lord, we're short on food. We're praying for things. It means you, you stop following God. When, it, when you're following somebody, and we're going to kind of apply this to ourselves, if you're following Christ, who's leading? He is. If you're following the Lord, who's leading your life? He is. So if you're doing everything wrong and sinful, 
Who are you following? Yourself. You're following your flesh. You're not following the Lord. I'm not saying that you won't make mistakes and you're not saying you're going to live perfectly, but ask yourself this question, who am I following? What is it, what is it that's leading me through life? Is it my desires? Is it my dreams? Am I following my spouse? What is, where, where am I finding, what, what is the, who's the, what's the authority or who's the authority in my life? What am I following? Listen, I can't effectively, and you, you either, you can't effectively represent Jesus if you're not following Jesus. You see, the Israelites didn't stop believing in God. They didn't even stop going to the temple because it was, it was a good time. It was an enjoyment. It was a party. It was a, it was a, it was a social event for them to go there. They just included, they, they just stopped listening to the Lord. They just stopped following. In other words, when the word of God says something to you, hey, and you read something and you say, I want, and, and you realize, Lord just spoke to me. I need to stop doing this thing in my life. To follow means you stop. Not say, oh, well, someday I'll do that. That's not following. Following means I'm going to listen. I'm going to conform to what the word of God says. That's what it means to follow. Not just take it as a suggestion or put it off for the future. I can't effectively represent Christ if I'm not following him. That's what the Lord is saying. I don't want, you know, the, the then part of that statement, if you don't follow me, if you don't follow me. But he also says to them, if you don't keep my commandments and my statutes. If you don't keep my commandments, what is that to us? It's the Bible. It's the word of God. We're not talking, I mean, we could refer to the Old Testament commandments, but I think for us as Christians, are, are we following? Yes. What, what's the, what does he want us to keep? His word. He wants us to keep his word. He wants us to be true to his word. It's the Bible. If we dismiss the word of God as irrelevant, if we take the word of God, it's just a suggestion for my life. If we take the word of God and we go, well, I don't really like that part. I don't agree with that. So I'm just going to erase that page and I'm not going to read that section. Well, I really don't like what it says over here. You're going to find lots of things you don't like in here that you have to apply to your life. And you have a choice. Either you believe it and conform to it or you remove it and go, well, that's, that part's not, not for me. Well, then you're not conforming. You just put yourself up as God. You're no longer following, nor are you obeying the word of God. Have you noticed how much the culture wants to put down the word of God as irrelevant for today? It's, it's not, the culture says that the, the book is 2,000 years old. It's not relevant. I, I suggest to you that it's more relevant today. It's just as relevant today as it was when it was written. It means it's just as valuable. It's, 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 it's everything, we're still people. It all still applies to us today. And we can't be changing it. We can't pick and choose what we want to believe. We can't pick and, I can't, I shouldn't be able to pick and choose what I want to teach. I have an obligation to teach the whole Bible. The, whole, the full counsel of God, from Genesis to Revelation, I need to teach you the whole counsel of God. Otherwise, you're only, if you only got half the counsel of God, I wouldn't want to answer for that someday. Now, if you miss a Sunday, that's your fault. But if you sit here long enough, we'll go through the entire book. We've done almost the whole New Testament already. I think we have three more books to do in the New Testament we've already been through. And we're, we're, make, we're in Kings, so we're working through the Old Testament, a little longer through the Old Testament. But it's, it, if you sit here long enough, you'll get through the, it might take me 15 years, but we'll get through the whole counsel of God. I can't effectively represent Christ if I'm not following Christ, and I can't effectively represent Christ if I'm not living a life based on biblical principles. If my life isn't based on the word of God, then I'm not, who am I representing? I'm representing my own ideas, my own ideals. I'm representing the things that I think are important, not the things that the Bible says are important. It becomes what's important to me. But notice what else he says. The third thing he says, if you go and serve other gods, if you run off and serve other gods, you're going to lose the nation. You're going to lose the land that I've given you. I'm going to vacate the temple and you're going to, you're going to be taken into captivity in a sense. You're, if you just go serve other gods. Notice he didn't say, if you stop serving me. He didn't say, if you stop believing in me. 
Only that if you begin to serve other gods. You see, you didn't wake up as a Hebrew one day and say, you know what, this whole, this whole Yahweh thing, Jehovah, I'm just going to pick another god. I'm going to pick one of the Canaanite gods to serve. It didn't work that way. It, didn't, it wasn't that black and white. What would happen is you would find a cute girl or a cute boy and you would meet them. And you look across the aisle and go, well, yeah, she's a, she's a Jebusite or she's a whatever, whatever she is or whatever he is. And you think, well, I kind of like them and we kinda, we're kind of living as neighbors. And, and you begin to build a relationship and you like one another. And you decide you want to get married someday. And your family goes, well, that's okay. That, that's old stuff that you know, we shouldn't marry outside of our, of our nation. That, that's old stuff. So, so yeah, go ahead and get married. And, and the problem is that you both aren't serving the same gods. One serving a Hebrew God and one serving another false God. And you say, well, we're just going to make this work. We can, we, can, we can do this. You're what the New Testament would call unequally yoked. We could make it work. We'll just, we'll just, you know, you go to your church, I'll go to my church, and we'll, and we'll make it work. And we become unequally yoked. And pretty soon that the woman and the woman or the man are all of a sudden, well, why don't you, you know, I tell you what, we'll go to my church one week, and then we'll go to your church one week. And then we'll kind of go back and forth, and we begin to work this thing back and forth where eventually one of the parties the Hebrew party, the Israelite party, is pulled away from Jehovah God. They're pulled away and they find themselves, it's not that they don't believe God anymore, they're just not serving Him. They're just not, at, they're not, they're not there, do, they're not doing the things that they should be doing for the Lord. They're, they're doing other things instead. And they may not even be bad things, but you know, we just don't have time to go. So we begin to get pulled away slowly and slowly and slowly. And then over time, you're going to look and go, how did I get here? How did I get this far apart? How did, wait a minute. I haven't been to church in months. I haven't been to church in weeks. I I've, 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 what, what am I doing? How did you get that far apart? God is no longer exclusive in your life. There begins to be other things that crowd him. And essentially what he's talking about here is idolatry. It's idolatry. You see, in our culture, the way this looks is we don't, we don't have other temples, so to speak, where we're going to worship other gods, but we do have other idols in our life that we put right alongside of God, don't we? You want to know what your idol is? I've said it many times. Find out where your money's going. Find out where you're spending your time. Especially look on Sunday morning. Find out what you, and I know you guys are all in church, but if you want to find out what somebody's worshiping, find out what they're doing Sunday mornings. Find out where they're, where they're, where's their money going? Where are they spending their time? Those, that'll tell you where your worship is going. Because you're worshiping with your time, with your money. You can even say, where are they putting their talents? The, 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 the gifts that God has given them, are they using them for the Lord? Or are they using them for their own benefit are they using them for no benefit are they not using them at all or are they using them to for themselves or for some other some other idol or some other god you can't rightly represent god if you're serving serving and worshiping other gods he can't just be another god that i'm worshiping he has to be the only god that i'm worshiping he has to be the one that i'm worshiping he has to be at the top of the food chain in my life the top of the pyramid in my life he has to be the one that i'm seeking for counsel he has to be the one, the word has to be held up to a, to a place in my life where I don't care what the culture says. I don't care whether I like it or not. I'm going to conform to it. I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to admit that if, even, if I'm, even if I'm not doing it, I'm going to admit I'm in sin. I'm not going to come to the place where I say, well, it's not really sin. It, God, God's word just made a mistake. There's, there's multiple meanings for that word. And, and, and you can begin to rationalize and things. And you can, it's amazing what you can convince yourself is true, isn't it? You, you can talk yourself into absolutely anything. Just give yourself enough time. If your flesh wants it bad enough, you'll talk yourself into it. And you can find things to blame on other people. You can always shift the blame and you can talk yourself into it. But if I want to represent Christ, if I want to represent Jesus Christ to the rest of the world, here's what, here's what uh, Solomon was warned about. That I can't represent Christ if I'm not following Christ. I can't represent Christ effectively if I'm not living a life based on biblical principles. And I can't represent Christ if I'm, not, if I'm serving and worshiping other gods. 
Even if, he, even if I do go to church a couple times a month, even if I do call myself a Christian, even if I did pray the prayer, there's other gods in my life, I'm not... Well, now, now, play it all backwards. Let's say I'm the non-believer, and I'm looking on the outside, looking in at your life. I'm looking at your life, and I see, all right, well, who, 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 are, who are you following? Where, where, well, there, there's a problem. Where do they run to? Oh, there's, oh, oh, oh money's tight. Where are they going to go? Oh, 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 okay. Oh, okay, I see. Oh, Sunday morning, where are you worshiping? Is there other gods in your life? What, what are you doing? Oh, church isn't that important? Oftentimes it happens when people, men and women will start dating. One pulls the other one away if they're not equally yoked. It becomes not so important anymore. Or you begin to look and well, I, I know the Bible says that, but I, I'm just, we're, we don't talk about that section in my church. We just don't want to offend anybody. Listen, the Bible is going to offend you pretty soon. It, it, it's a matter of time. If it hasn't already, it will. You're going to have to make a decision. Do you want to conform to it or not? And I won't ever apologize for what it says because it offends me just as much as it offends you sometimes because it shows me what a sinner I am. Because I, it shows me why I need a Savior. And as we look at that, as, as Israel was supposed to represent God to all the other nations, what incredible blessing they could have received if they'd have just stayed true to God. But they didn't. They began to, and we've seen it in Solomon's life. We've seen little compromises here and there. First, he marries a wife down from Egypt, and they weren't supposed to do that. Then he's bringing, collecting horses, and he's collecting chariots, which kings weren't supposed to do that. They were supposed to be dependent on the Lord. But his wealth is increasing. His popularity is increasing. His fame's increasing. He's getting well known. And the little compromises are going to begin to add up and add up and add up. And before, we're not, we won't get there tonight, but Solomon's going to come crashing down. We're going to find that it's going to pull him farther and farther away from the Lord. Look at verse 10. Now it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, the house, the Lord, house of the Lord and the king's house. Haram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired. And King Solomon then gave Haram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. And Haram went to Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called the land Kabul, and they, as they are to this day. Then Haram sent the king 120 talents of gold. Tyre was up north of Israel. It's in modern-day Lebanon. It was known for its fine wood. King Solomon gave away 20 cities. Now, as you might think, well, that's the fair deal. He got all the wood and gold. He needed. What's wrong with 20 cities? What's the, do you see a problem with that? Solomon gave away 20. Well, Rob, it's kind of a fair trade. No, no, this was the promised land. This was the land that God had given the people. And he's trading it for worldly possessions. He's trading God's promise for possessions of the world. And, it, and the guy that's getting it doesn't even appreciate it. He thinks they're, he calls them Kabul, which means worthless. This was the land of promise. And now Solomon's giving away part of God's promise in exchange for the things like lumber and like gold. Oh, I wonder if we do the same thing. I wonder if we exchange God's promises to us for worldly things. I wonder if we have a promise of God that we want to come true, but we won't get rid of the things of the world. There's a, there's a, there's a discrepancy there. There's a divide there. Solomon is giving away what was supposed to be the promised land so that he could build a house for himself and a temple. And a temple. Now, there's two possible situations here because the guy that he gave them to didn't like him. Either Solomon was a shrewd businessman and, and rather dishonest and knew that he wouldn't like him, or perhaps or the second situation is perhaps Solomon undervalued the city, cities and didn't realize that he wouldn't like him. It could have been a, either way we read 
that Haram, the king of Tyre, he didn't like him. He called him Kabul, which means worthless. Nevertheless, he gave him 120 talents of gold. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, does it? 120 talents of gold. You go, well, that, that, how much is a talent? 75 pounds. 75 pounds is what a talent is. That's between 70 and 75 is what most Bible scholars would, re- would suggest. So anybody doing the math real quick? 9,000 pounds of gold. Okay, dollar value, today's value, I looked it up. Just over 150 million. Okay, just over 150 million is what he's given. Does that give you an idea of the wealth of Solomon? $150 million in today's value of gold. And we're going to find out at the end of this chapter that he's going to receive even more gold. We're going to find out at the end of the chapter he's going to give him about $600 million in gold. So just give you an idea of the wealth. Look at verse 15. And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, to build his own house, to build the Millo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, Gezer, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, and he killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. Solomon built Gezer, Lower Beth Haran, Baloth, Tadmor, in the wilderness, in the land of Judah, all the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots, and cities for his cavalry, cavalry. And what, whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, in all the land of his dominion. Some of you guys have a lot of store stuff and you have a storage unit. Solomon had storage cities. <laughs> he had storage cities. He had a massive labor force to come build these projects. He, had the, he built the temple, his house. The, the millo probably refers to the prominent fortress near the temple and the palace. He built these cities, these, four, these three fortified cities, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Hazor was three miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It provided a city in the north. Megiddo was the fortress that controlled the major passes uh, coming off, of, off the Mediterranean Sea into the Jezreel Valley, back p- past Mount Carmel. Coming up, it, the Jezreel Valley runs from the Mediterranean Sea through, through Mount, past Mount Carmel and up, into, up in towards Jerusalem. Gezer is on the road from Joppa to Jerusalem. It's, it's uh, directly east of Joppa. It was a Canaanite city, but it was given to Solomon by Pharaoh in Egypt. So Pharaoh takes it, gives it to Solomon as a dowry for his wife, for his daughter. Verse 20, all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel, that is their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely, from these Solomon raised forced labor as it is to this day. Is there a problem with this? You betcha. They were supposed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. They were supposed to remove them from the land. And they were warned if they didn't remove them from the land that they were going to be the ones that bring them down. They weren't supposed to be slaves of Israel. They were supposed to be kicked out of the promised land. But what, did, what, what, what happens? Well, they really, hey, there's a need. Yeah, why should we do the work? We can make ourselves supervisors and you guys do the work. God strictly commanded that the remnants of these tribes be driven out of the land and not used as slave labor in Israel. Again, another little compromise in Solomon's life. Another area. But I can do so much good with it. I can, I, I, this, is how, this, is how, this is how compromise works in our life. I know that I'm supposed to drive them out, but listen, I can use these people. And 
God really wouldn't want me to drive them out and make them homeless, would he? So I'm just going to use them to accomplish God's work. I'm going to build my house. I'm going to build my wife's house. And I'm going to, I'm going to be a mighty builder. and a, I'm going to be a contractor. And I'm just going to use them as my labor. Do you see, do you see how that compromise works? And, and you can even twist it and turn it. Well, I'll use, we'll, we'll accomplish things for the Lord together. That's not what God said. God said, get rid of them. God said, don't be unequally yoked. If you leave these things around, they're going to be the very people that draw you away from me. It's true in our life as well. There's things in your life that will draw you away from the God. There's things in your life that pull you away from the Lord. There's things in your life that fight for your time. If you don't get rid of them, if you keep them around, they're going to keep drawing you away. They're going to keep you struggling. Do you know that you only struggle when there's a decision? If there's no decision to be made, there's no struggle? What do you mean, Rob? Well, if I'm only struggling, if I'm trying to figure out, do I want to do this or do I want to do that? If I already made up my mind that I don't do this any longer, there's no, there's no struggle anymore. The struggle's gone. I don't have to struggle. I don't do that anymore. Several years ago, before I became a pastor, the Lord put on my heart to quit drinking alcohol. I don't drink, I don't drink at all. And I don't, I don't think pastors should, by the way. I know there's a movement in churches where, you know, beers in the Bible or whatever it is that's going on where they're meeting with people. That's, I heard about it recently where they have, after church on Sunday, they go to the draft house and they have a beer and they talk about the Bible. But everyone can only have one beer. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But it's, but it's going on around our country. It's, it's, it's surface surfacing. It's, it's, it's really happening. I don't think it should be happening. I don't think pastors have any business doing it. I made a decision a long time ago. The Lord, the Lord told me to stop drinking alcohol, and I did. I don't struggle with that. It doesn't mean I'm never tempted occasionally. From time to time, there's a rare instance where I'm tempted, but I don't sit around going, oh, I want to drink, and I wish I could have a drink, and I used to drink, and it would make me relax, and I'm really kind of stressed out. Oh, I don't, it's such a struggle in my life. It's not, because I don't do it. It's not an option. If you take away the option, there's no struggle to be had. You're only struggling when you have two options presented before you. If you will get rid of the option, what are you struggling about? The problem is when you sit and go, oh, I want to do that. Oh, it'll make me feel better. Oh, I haven't, well, just, I mean, I got grace, right? I got grace. God will forgive me. And then you go, that's where the struggle comes in. Once you take away the option in your life, there's no more struggle. Once you say, I will not do this, and you settle on that, unless you revisit that choice, the struggle's over. The decision's made. But sometimes we keep going back and forth. We keep battling. I would suggest to you tonight that if there's something that you need to take away the option of, leave it here tonight. We always close with a time of prayer. Leave it here at the foot of the cross. Quit struggling over it. Quit fighting over it. Maybe the Lord's telling you to forgive, and you know, you're, just do it. Whatever it is that the struggle is, leave it here. Don't keep struggling. And then, there, then there's no longer an option. There's no longer a struggle because you don't have to do that. Solomon here is using the labor of the people that he is supposed to be driven out. And as he's doing the labor, do you know what he's doing? He's collecting wives. As this is all happening, well, she's kind of cute. Oh, and look at her over there. And oh, I really like the Egyptian women. Oh, look at this one, the Jebusites, man. You've got to see them. And we're going to find, and this is what he's doing through all this. This is what Solomon's doing. Look at verse 26. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near Alath, on the shore of the Red Sea, the land of Edom. And Haram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there, brought it to King Solomon. Solomon was a businessman. He was an entrepreneur. He was making money. He was having great success. He was extremely wise, but he was failing to follow God in his own life. 
Well, his success was wonderful. His wisdom was deep. He was unbelievable. We're going to see in the next chapter, the next time we meet about the Queen of Sheba is going to come to him for advice and she'll be blown away with his wisdom. But over here in the corner of his life are all these little compromises that are taking place. All these little things. And they're going to eventually be the very things that bring him down. I was, I was told something not long ago and it, it rang true. Satan is very patient. He is very patient. He will not bring you down overnight. He will bring you down piece by piece, bit by bit, compromise by compromise, a little bit over here, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? It'll be this little bit that compromises here and there. And before you know it, you'll be looking and going, how did I get here? I never thought I'd go this far. How did I find myself in this position? And you'll realize it's all started, if you'll track it back, with a little bit of compromise, one after the other. And if you're doing the math, 420 talents of gold is 31,500 pounds of gold at roughly $1,200 an ounce, 16 ounces in a pound at a little over $600 million. You want to get an idea of the wealth. That's what that payday was. So how much do you think he really had? Talk about a wealthy man. You know, Bill Gates had nothing on Solomon. The wealthiest men in the world today had nothing on what Solomon had. Nothing, not even in the same realm. I I don't know anybody that has 31,000 pounds of gold. I'm sure Bill Gates doesn't have that either. He might have more money than that's worth. But I did some other things. My mind works kind of funny when I'm doing Bible studies. And I was looking at this, I'm like, well, and I I did it based on kilograms as opposed to pounds. And I wondered... What's worth more, a pound of gold or a pound of heroin? It's a problem in our society, right? What do you think is worth more, a kilogram of gold or a kilogram of heroin? Heroin. Heroin's worth more than gold. Isn't that amazing? Does it tell you what our society says is important? What, what, what can go on the streets? There's no reason in my Bible study to say that. I just found that interesting. I just thought, wow, I wonder what's worth more. But a kilogram of heroin is worth more than a kilogram of gold. Wow. And that's what our problem in society is right now with medication and addictions. Compromise. Compromise with the word of God. So we come to the end of our study tonight. And as always, I want to take a few minutes to close in prayer and just see what the Lord would show you. Hopefully we're able to take Solomon's life and look back at it And reflect upon our own life and say, is there something in here, Lord, that I need to work at? Am I rightly representing you, Lord? Am I following you? Am I holding the word of God to the standard it should be in my life? Am I worshiping and serving other gods? Is there something getting in the way of you? Lord, am I I trading your promises for things of the world? Am I trading, like Solomon was trading land, the, the promises of the promised land for lumber and gold. Am I exchanging your promises for the lies that Satan would tell me? Am I believing the lie of Satan over the promise of God for pleasure, for wealth, for whatever it is? If you are, am, am I, am I, in my life, am I blaming other people? Am I, take a moment and just go before the Lord and, and, and get real. Say, Lord, will you just show me where the areas are in my life that I need to change? Will you show me the areas that I'm, maybe I need to be encouraged, Lord, just, just show me. Maybe you're doing really good and, and everything's great, then, then go before the Lord and praise him for it. Because you're on a mountaintop. And if that's you, if you come in, well, Rob, there's nothing wrong, great, you're on a mountaintop, but remember, the greatest battle is coming next. 
Tomorrow morning could be your greatest battle if you're, not, if you're on the mountaintop tonight because you're not going to be up there forever. So keep seeking the Lord. And if you're on the mountaintop, you go, Lord, I, Rob, I don't have these problems. It's not me tonight. Then you seek him too and say, Lord, what do you want me to do next? You, you, Lord, where do I need to work? Show me, Lord. Because if you're on the mountaintop, I can promise you, you won't stay there. That's the way life goes, up and down. That's the way we go. But if you're down in the valley and you go, you know what, I, I came in here with some of this stuff that you're saying, I, I need to deal with it. The wonderful thing is we can lay it at the foot of the cross. You can make the decision not to struggle anymore with the sin and leave it here and never have to worry about it again. That's the power of the gospel. It sets you free. It sets you free from those things so you wouldn't have to. Think about it. The gospel sets us free. Don't come be a Christian so you can struggle like me. No, the gospel brings freedom. We'll see that coming up in Romans on Sunday, coming up in chapter 6 and 7. So let's go before the Lord. Father, this is your time. Holy Spirit, would you just fall upon us in whatever area, whatever way our life needs? Would you just minister to us? Would you just show us? Lord, I'll be quiet so you can speak.